Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and welcome to The Daily Beast, the new abnormal. I'm a left-wing pundit and an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer. Our world has been turned upside down. On The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and figure out how to get ourselves out of it. And I'm producer Jesse Kennan. I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. Today we have a great show with Attorney General of Michigan, Dana Nessel, who's going to talk to us about redistricting, militia movements, and radicalized GOP secretaries of state who are threatening democracy. Then we'll talk to Paxton Smith, whose valedictorian speech on Texas's heartbeat bill went viral, and she's going to tell us her story. But first, we have Washington Post contributing columnist George Conway. Welcome back, George Conway, to the new Abnormal. I see this is episode 123. Yes, Mm -hmm. and this is your 123rd appearance on the pod. (laughs) I don't know about that. Maybe 100. Yeah, we kill it. But this weekend, you and I talked on the phone, and we were talking about this speech by the former guy that was very hyped up. And and my pillow guy was involved, right? I don't know. Was he my pillow guy? I saw him on the advertisement, but then it said it was in a North Carolina GOP. Uh, no, event. no, no. My pillow guy has something going on in Wisconsin. Oh yes, and later on, and former guy is going to be beamed in. Oh yeah, some electronic means. Lucky them. <laughs> so this weekend it was his first speech since CPAC. He came. His pants were very wrinkled and maybe on incorrectly. No, we don't- no, they were no, no. they were on correctly. There's a Snopes for this. Come on. There's a Snopes for this. I mean, what, right. what happened with the pants was somebody was looking. I don't think there was an attempt to create some kind of a fake image. I think what happened was somebody was watching it on their computer and the video was of low quality and... If you zoom in on the low-quality video, you cannot see. Right, you can't really see his fly. And in fact, in some images from the same video, I noticed you can't even see the edge of his lapel. And right. I think it's just due to the poor-quality video and the lighting. But anyway, this set off a whole thing on Twitter. It's like, wait a minute, is this guy wearing his pants on backwards? Right. Look at the wrinkles. Right. Is he just wearing a pair of pull-ons because he's wearing diapers? And, you right. know, I mean, it was just a lot of, whole lot of fun for a Sunday morning. In my mind, it seems that that is not the discourse you want after a speech. No, although the thing is, he's so crazy and he behaves so crazily. You know, the, the image of him doing something that bizarre um, and not, you know, and not being fully of sound mind is something that is, you know, that has people wondering. And he did say <laughs> some typically crazy things, and that's what he does. But some people like that. <laughs> but it was 90 minutes. 
Yeah, I didn't. I, I could only make it through about the first 10. <laughs> yeah. I mean, after the first fusillade of lies, I, I just I just couldn't bear it. And he hadn't even gotten to his full election. Election was stolen. The yeah. biggest steal in history rant, um, which apparently came later. I definitely thought that he was tired and kind of sleepy and diminished. I mean, I saw some clips and he was clearly slurring things. You know, he was no more incoherent than he usually is. Right. I mean, it was just, I, I mean, it was just boring word salad and predictable word salad. You know, and, I, you know, I guess the crowd there may like some of that. It just isn't terribly exciting anymore. It's interesting to me that one of the things I think that is sort of the most notable of the whole speech was that he was like, I did these vaccines. I created the vaccines in the lab, you know, and then his uh, audience was pretty unexcited about the vaccines. Yeah, I think that's just one of the bizarre aspects of all this. I mean, he does deserve, along with the Democratic Congress that funded it, you know, he does deserve credit for the government throwing a whole pile of money at the vaccine. We weren't developing and distributing vaccines. I mean, it was right. something that was done. I mean, the one thing that we Americans are good at is is throwing money at stuff when we're really <laughs> desperate and we have to yeah. do it. <laughs> and look, the whole world is looking at us now and say, hey, that was, we wish we had done that. But I mean, I think there's a lot of credit for that to go around. I think there's a, obviously Congress funded it and the, the Biden people have carried it through the home stretch. And then, and of course, there was the, you know, the, 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 the better, one of the better vaccines, of course, is Pfizer. And they didn't take the, the, the seed money from the federal government. So right. it's just a lot of things happened that happened right. And he deserves, you know, in, in fairness to him, he deserves some credit. And what's, sad about this is that he didn't, you know, he's so busy saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. He didn't really say you, you really should take this vaccine. Right. If you want, you, you should take, get your shot. If you really want to go around not wearing masks and get the economy moving again. And, you know, he had an opportunity to do that before January 20th. In fact, he did get vaccinated before right. he left and he in, in Milan. He could have done right. that, but he was, for some reason, he was focused on other things uh, in <laughs> but January. What, but what could he have been focused on, George well, Conway? you know, himself. And not the betterment of his fellow citizens. Right, and his violent insurrection. Now, I just want to get back to COVID for one second because I think it's important we talk about this. You liberals can never get enough of COVID. Oh, we love it, baby. <laughs> but conservatives are very, you know, conservative media and also a lot of the mainstream media believes that this lab leak theory needs more investigation. Investigation. I say bring it on, but why can't we have hearings about Trump's COVID response? Carrie Cordero and I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post probably now more than a year ago saying we need to have a, some kind of an investigation as to how all of this came about and, and happened. And I think that, you know, it would be part of Sure, lab leak would be part of it. Um, uh, we didn't focus on lab leak then, but that would be part of it. Their origins will be part of it. What our intelligence agencies knew about it in and January it. and February and maybe even December, which was the focus of our op-ed piece way back when, would be a critical part of it. Because right. the question is, what, what, did, what did the government do when it was receiving intelligence reports about 
you know, Wuhan and right. the place being locked down and people right. getting sick. Right. And that, you know, meanwhile, Trump was out there telling people it wasn't going to be a problem. And he was at CPAC. Yeah. Well, in February. Remember, he was watching the Lisa Page and Peter Strook play. <laughs> when he should have been at a fucking COVID briefing. Right. And and then and then also toward the end of February, there was a woman at CD, I think the CDC, yes, who basically that. said, her, Deb, Deborah Messioner, I, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Messing. She basically said, look, this is, we're looking at this very seriously as a possible pandemic. She said something like that. Yeah. And the, she the, said your whole he, life he, is going to change. He was in India at the time, getting right. being being worshipped. Wined and dined <laughs> by Modi. And, and having a big rally at a soccer stadium. And he hears about this, I think, on the way back, and he wants to fire the woman. And she was right. Yeah, and she was right. And if they had done things just two weeks earlier, yeah, right, if things had been shut down a week or two earlier, I mean, hundreds of thousands of lives would have been saved. This thing, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, it would have been, there would have been a significant death toll anyway, but you know the, it got it spread out of control before the community spread was so great. By the time my, by March time March thirteen rolled around and people started to take it seriously, you'd think now with all the fever about Fauci's emails that they'd say, "Oh yeah, we should investigate this further." But we all know that they're only going to do that if it blocks their guy from being investigated. Well, they they don't actually want an investigation. They want a distraction from an investigation. So they make a big deal out of these emails. And for the life of me, I don't, I couldn't figure out what they were talking about with <laughs> emails. They, you know, they were just saying, "Aha!" Oh well, no, he was just this guy getting, you know, trying to do his job and getting ten thousand emails a day and responding to a few of them and not others. And and the notion that somehow he overlooked. Lab, the lab leak theory, I mean, that, that wasn't his job. I mean, his job was to figure out what to get the public and the government to do to stop the spread of this thing, not play, um, you know, international detective to f- figure out where it came from, because it really didn't matter at that point where it came from. The problem was it was killing people. Um, and, and, that, and, and all that being said, we still don't, you know, just because all, all people are saying now is, hey, this is a p- possibility that should not be excluded. And there's no, you know, there's no clear evidence one way or the other um, that that, sh- that could demonstrate that whether whether this theory will hold water or not. It's just, hey, it's a possibility, and there are some reasons to believe that it was a possibility. And then there's some, we don't have full evidence to be able to figure out whether it's the the fact or not. Look, I'm happy to investigate the lab leap, hold China responsible. I don't have a horse in this race. Yeah, exactly, and it doesn't excuse any failures of the of the government to respond and that that doesn't just include trump i mean it includes the cdc's yes. screwing up of the test kits early on that test kits serious. and the masks getting out there and saying don't wear a mask when you needed to wear a mask right and then and you know and fauci fauci does bear some yeah. you know responsibility for that i think they had their reasons at the time i don't think they fully focused on exactly how the thing spread and i think they were concerned about the shortage of ppp PPE at at hospitals and other facilities. The fact of the matter is, just because just because that the the masks we were a little late on the masks doesn't undermine the fact that they actually did us a lot of good and it was the right thing to do in the end. You know, it's just funny to hear the wingers who are trying to defend Trump criticize Fauci for not getting on the mask. <laughs> <laughs> 
bandwagon Excuse me? <laughs> Remember the reporting that Jared Kushner said, like, if these governors don't pound the pavement hard enough, like, their people are going to die. Yeah, well, it was, a, it was a total, it was an evasion of responsibility. So, George Conway, you were a Republican. Three years and two months ago, I was. The thing I keep thinking as Manchin is now completely like Manchin and and cinema, but really Manchin has, you know, this weekend there was this op-ed, there was this, there was that. There were people on Twitter saying that Manchin should get removed from his committees. Spoiler, you do that, you have a Republican majority in the Senate. Um, Don't you feel like if this, if Manchin were Republican and Mitch McConnell were whipping this vote, we would not be having this conversation? I don't know that Mitch McConnell has 100% success in whipping his people. He's pretty high success, though. Look, the fact of the matter is, if you are a senator on the edge of your party, you have a lot of power. And that includes Susan Collins's, the Lisa Murkowski's of the world, as well as the cinemas and the mansions. I mean, that's just... You have a, you know, it's it's in any multi-member voting body. I mean, the, the most powerful justice for many was Sandra Day O'Connor and then Anthony Kennedy. Because right. when you're a swing vote, it, it's basically sometimes things when they're close become your call. And I just think there is, if, you know, there is always going to be the temptation for people who are from states that could go either way to play that role and it may be also because that's the where, you know, their ideology reflects the tenuous or the balanced nature of the state from which they're elected. So I don't necessarily uh, want be, would be as critical of them. And I would not necessarily say that there is much, that, that there is always much that a majority leader or minority leader can do to influence their vote. At the end of the day, these people do what's in their own political best interest and and in what they ultimately believe. Do you think that there is, so what Manchin said this weekend, which I think is interesting, was that he wouldn't support this HB1, but he would support the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which conveniently has not been written. Well, I, look, I think I think there's a lot of people like that. Right. Uh, I think there are more people more than Manchin in the Senate. I mean, I, I I think a lot of people talk about HR one and say, oh my God, this is the this is, this is the thing to save democracy. And right. I mean, there are things in there that I think are probably good. There are. It's a 900 page bill. I thought it was much more than that. It's at least 900 pages. It's, I yeah, looked, I, I actually kind yeah. of skimmed through it and, you know, at least read the table of contents. And there's a lot of stuff in there I wouldn't vote for. Well, there's government funding of elections, which is a big sticking point. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's a, I mean, a lot of stuff in there that has nothing to do with voting. Nothing. And protecting people's rights to votes, vote. And, you know, I, it, what happens, it, this is kind of what happens sometimes when power shifts in Washington is you get these bills. And I, I, you know, as a securities lawyer, I've seen it twice happen in the financial industry. You get these mega bills where people just throw everything they've ever wanted and wanted to stick in other bills for the, for the last several years. And you get this bloated monster that has us all sorts of things in there that no, you know, that, 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 that they're hoping just to slip by. And I, I think that if you really want to protect 
franchise in the United States. I think a better way to do it would be with a narrower bill focused on a few things that are achievable and maybe you can pick off some Republicans for. Right. And I think there are some there are some Republicans who you can pick off on this stuff, I'm pretty sure. There aren't ten. There aren't ten. Yeah, well there's the filibuster problem and I know people are dumping on Manchin for that. But the fact of the matter is, I mean people are looking at the filibuster these days as this kind of Republican awful Republican creation. Right. And, you know, the fact of the matter is Democrats have used it to quite... Right. Everybody's used it. Everybody's used it because, you know, because Because when the Democrats use it, the liberals view it as this is the way we save democracy from this horrible, these horrible people who have the Senate majority. And, And to me, it's just, you know, it cuts both ways. And to me, it just doesn't make any sense because what happened was this wasn't some you know, longstanding creation that made a lot of sense from the get-go. What we have today was not the filibuster that they had 30, I mean, 40, 50 years ago or 100 years ago. This is this is just an insane thing that's not a filibuster, but really is, a, you know, it's become this 60, 60 vote requirement for all legislation, which isn't consistent with the Constitution. And there really are not 10 sane Republicans. Well, they, they are on some things, I think, but but not a lot. You know, right, these days, You're though, not going to get 10 of them. McConnell has enough control over his caucus that he can get 40 out of 50, 41 out of 50 on anything. And these and these right. people on both sides had gotten into the habit of, you know, assuming that 60 votes requires to pass just about everything. And that you're, you know, unless you have 60 votes, you don't put anything to a vote. And both sides have gotten into this habit of this is what a filibuster is. And that's why it's been so hard to get rid of, because both parties got used to this. I mean, the, the Democrats used it to great effect 15 years ago to block President George W. Bush's nominees for federal appeals courts. I feel like you're upset, still upset about that. <laughs> uh, no, I think the whole, well, I think it's, look, I, I, yeah, I, did, I thought that was ridiculous. Yeah, and I think that what's going on now is ridiculous. It's like, you know, if you want to have a 60 vote requirement and you want right. to have a filibuster, you only use that for extreme situations when you're really trying to make a point about something true. Not not every single time. And the way to guarantee that is to go back to the old rule that required people to actually yap on the floor. Right. But I don't want to give you a hard time, and yet I do want to give you a hard time and say that this is, like, about more than just judges, right? I mean, though... No, it's more about... I'm just using that as an right. example no, no. of how, you know, the other side used it for something, and then, it, yes. you know, it's been... Yes. It's been it just, it got out of hand. Right. But and, we can agree that, like, there may be porky things in that bill, but fundamentally, Republicans have gone, like, all into authoritarianism, and Democrats have a very small window to stop it. I don't disagree with that, but I'm, I, I do think that there are things in there that would be harder to resist if if it was if they were focused on them, that's all. Right. No. No. I mean, look the the problem of getting it passed is fundamentally a, is a failure on the part of Democratic leadership, right? Because that should be you know this should be a no brainer. Again, I don't know about that because I think there's just a lot of crap in there. Right. There's a lot of junk in there. They should have a bill that can be passed. 
Yeah, but I don't know whether there is a bill that can be passed for the reason that you say. I mean, you make a good point. They may not, you know, at this point, there may not be 10 Republicans to vote for anything. Right. But you can make it a lot harder on these people by saying, come on, you're not against this, you're not against that, it, it, by, with a stripped-down bill. And right. to really focus focus the effort, focus the issues on on certain things. So anyway, this weekend in the sort of Saturday news dump that Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff, had been pushing the DOJ to investigate this QAnonic rumor that Italy had been changing the ballots by using their military. Yeah, and to put it in more context, what happened is that a Senate committee subpoenaed the National Archives for emails and and this was an investigation that came out of an earlier news story broken, I think, by the Times uh, about how uh, the White House was communicating with the Justice Department. And there was a guy in the Justice Department who was head of the environmental division and an acting head of the civil division who was in direct touch with Trump about the possibility of of the Justice Department supporting that crazy Texas lawsuit that went to the that they filed in the Supreme Court and this prompted a subpoena to the National Archives for everything relating to that I guess and some other things and one of the things that was produced was a whole cache of emails from then chief of staff Mark Meadows that included this attempt to get the FBI and the DOJ interested in this crazy conspiracy theory that you could find online where some guy was saying that Barack Obama <laughs> took one of the pallets of cash that was sent to the Iranians as part of the um, Iranian nuclear deal and gave it to some Italians, and the Italians used the money to create some software that they downloaded into American voting systems by satellite that switched votes from Trump to Biden. This is the chief of staff of the White House pushing this theory on the Justice Department. <laughs> we only have the tip of the iceberg of all the crazy stuff that went on this winter. You know, this is another thing that ought to be investigated. It might be part of a January 6th commission that isn't going to happen. But these guys right. were doing some wild, wild stuff. And it wasn't just the campaign and the cookie campaign hangers on and the lawyers who were working on the campaign or wanted to work on camp the campaign like Rudy Giuliani and, and, and Sidney Powell. This stuff was going on in the White House. And I got to say, yeah, I have to wonder whether there weren't some illegalities in all of this. Wait, what? You're a lawyer. Yes. Do you notice that there was criming? I'm wondering whether there was criming. I'm not saying there was criming, and I'm not sure, completely sure what the theory might be. But this stuff is political, okay? This is political, and you're trying to get the Justice Department essentially to aid the election litigation strategy of a political campaign, I'm not sure that isn't a criminal violation of the Hatch Act. Yeah. I wonder about that. And also, I mean, you know, it's you're running close to sedition here, trying to get, you know, government officials 
to act in support of a bullshit conspiracy theory to overturn the results of an election. I mean, there, I mean, there could be a criminal conspiracy involved there. I don't think that's not, that's not protected by free speech. The question is, I think it's going to be a question of what it was they were asking people to do and what their state of mind was. And I, and I, but I'm not confident that any of this is ever going to be fully investigated, but it should be. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe the Justice Department will move on up from the people, the five or six hundred people who were who they're looking at, who were at the Capitol to um, the other things like who organized the rally and who at the White House was communicating with those people and what else those people were doing at the White House to try to keep Trump in office. And I think yeah. all these things relate at a certain level and ought to be fully investigated. Do you think that the Democrats should have a sort of like Benghazi-esque select committee because they're not going to get a bipartisan anything? Well, I I don't think that it should be Benghazi-esque. I think a select committee is not a bad idea because there should be some form of investigation. I don't like the idea of it being like the Benghazi committee because that was purely a political stunt. I think if they do conduct... Um, an investigation. They should make heavy use of counsel and not put on, you know, these, you know, have these hearings where every member gets five minutes to rant and rage in some disorganized fashion. And it looks like a, you know, and allows the Republicans to turn it into a political shit show. And I think I, I do, I mean, if it's possible, and I briefly scanned the House rules, a, a couple of weeks ago or a few days ago about how this might be done. I think the speaker has a great deal of power in determining who is the mem- who, who becomes a member of a select committee. Yeah. And um, maybe you, she could pick a select committee where the Republicans are the people who voted responsibly uh, in favor of the January 6th commission and include some of the members who voted for the impeachment of Donald Trump. Right. Like an Adam Kinzinger... And uh, Liz Cheney. Yes, exactly. The the minority uh, a leader of, you know, on the committee could be, uh, the, the ranking member could be uh, Liz Cheney. That would be great. And most importantly, though, is Trey Gowdy a vampire? <laughs> I have no idea. So, yes, you're, you're, you're saying yes. Okay. This is- oh, but, but as I pointed out to you yesterday, Mo, Mo Brooks blocked me. <laughs> I know. It's, you should have done a better job blocking his password in that photo. Mo Brooks still <laughs> hasn't blocked me, but I have his uh, his um, password, his email password. <laughs> hey, folks. If you haven't heard, every single week we do a special bonus episode for Beast Inside, the Daily Beast membership program. Sometimes we interview senators like Cory Booker or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes we just have friends around to analyze what's happening in the news. You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member, where you'll support the Beast's fearless journalism, as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, there's something I've really been needing to get off my chest lately, which is that everyone and their mother should listen to the Andre 3000 album because it lifts my spirits on a regular basis, 1000%. We all carry around different problems, big and small. And let's be honest, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. That's where therapy comes in. It's like this safe space where you can unload all those burdens and start figuring out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy can make a difference. I know this from firsthand experience, and it's not just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for anyone who wants to improve their mental well-being. Therapy can help you learn coping skills. It can teach you how to set better boundaries, and it can make you be a better version of yourself. If you're considering therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, which means it's convenient, flexible, and fits into your schedule seamlessly. Plus, getting started is as easy as filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part, you can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. So why wait? Take that first step towards a happier, healthier you with BetterHelp. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash The New Abnormal today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash The New Abnormal. Tina Nessel is the Attorney General of the State of Michigan. Welcome to The New Abnormal, A.G. Nessel from the great state of Michigan. We are very excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I appreciate it. So Michigan's such an interesting state, and I always want, we had Governor Whitmer on, and we always have, and I've had a lot of congresspeople from Michigan. Michigan, to me, is like such an important state for Democrats and such an important state because you have everything going on there. Yeah, we've really been ground zero for everything here. So whether it's acts of domestic terrorism, uh, whether it's claims, false claims of election fraud and having to defend uh, the 5.5 million voters that voted in our election in 2020, which was a record turnout. You know, we've had it all in this day. We've had Trump go after all of our lady executive office holders. So not only did he really take on Governor Whitmer, but he came after our Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson. And And myself as well, which was an odd set of circumstances. But yeah, we've had a lot of uh, activity in the state of Michigan. Unfortunately, not all of it good. I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about, but I really want to talk to you about the Michigan militia. I had um, Representative Debbie Dingell on the podcast, and she talked about the experience of being a woman Democrat in Michigan and the sort of scary threat that is the Michigan militia, but it's also a place where today's Republican Party is very much. It's an odd set of circumstances. So our uh, executive branch now, you know, all Democrats and mostly female Democrats, uh, but our 
legislature is still very, very badly gerrymandered. Uh, one of the most gerrymandered states in the nation. And as a result, we have a very far right wing uh, state house and state senate. Now that fortunately will likely not be the case as of uh, after the 2022 election, because for the first time ever, we passed in 2018, a nonpartisan redistricting commission that will redraw the lines fairly, one hopes. But for right now, we have a very, very, very far right wing legislature and a very, you know, very progressive women who are in our executive offices. And then most of our uh, congressional delegation of our seven uh, Democrats, five are, are women. Uh, and one of our two senators is a woman. So there's been a lot of anger and hostility targeting the female electeds in this state. We also, by the way, have a majority of women on our state Supreme Court. Uh, so we have a lot of women elected uh, Democrats primarily, and uh, the men that are in elected office in higher positions as Republicans don't seem to really care for that set of circumstances. I love to see it. This is amazing. How do you know the redistricting is going to be fair? Because this is like, as a Democrat, one of my big things that keeps me up at night is redistricting. Well, I mean, honestly, that's why we passed the, it's called, the name of the proposal was Voters Not Politicians. And the idea was that the voters should pick who their elected officials are. The elected officials should not pick who their voters are. So we have this you know, bipartisan redistricting commission that is under the auspices of our Secretary of State. And those members have been selected and they're independent really from the other branches of government. They have their own communications director, their own legal counsel, all of that. And I'm very confident that they will do a good job in drawing the lines, certainly a better job than the Republican legislature did uh, in 2010. The problem, as I see it, more than anything is going to revolve around the census data, because as we know, just like everything else that Trump touched in his four years in office, great damage was done to the Census Bureau intentionally, not just because of COVID. Yeah. And so the numbers are coming in very late, which means that the districts are not going to be drawn in time uh, to comply with our constitutional mandate. And that case now is going to our state Supreme Court. Wait, Matt Gates? <laughs> Matt Gates. Mandate. Oh, mandates. Uh, you could see where my head is at. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, I, I will say this. Michigan has a lot of um, scary things going on, but at least we don't have Matt Gates. <laughs> so don't we're not to blame for everything, apparently. Right. OK, good. Yes. So you trust the redistricting will be fair. I think so. Yeah, that is good news for at least one state. <laughs> the rest right. we can just focus on worrying about the rest. So talk to me about like I, there have been so many photographs of the militia coming into the state house. Like, have you been scared for your life? Very much so. And I will say this. I know we're supposed to be strong. We're supposed to be tough and you know, lady electeds, we're not allowed to be emotional, you know, or pretend that we have a menstrual cycle or anything like that. But I, I will be honest, the death threats have been so prevalent. Um, it's a scary set of circumstances. We have had people out at our Secretary of State's house, at my house. Obviously, we're handling a case right now involving a plot to kidnap and execute Governor Whitmer. Um, you know, on more than one occasion, I've had people outside my house uh, who, you know, taking pictures of my children and threatening to, to kill me. And, you know, 
quite candidly, had there, had there been times where I wondered whether it was worth it to stay in this position because I was concerned about, uh, you know, threats to myself or to my family members? Yeah, I'll, I'll concede it. I have thought about it more than once, whether it was worth it and whether I, it was appropriate to risk the lives of my family members. But ultimately, I've decided to stick with it. I've been very aggressive about going after those that threaten the lives of, of our officials. So whether they're Republicans or Democrats, I brought a number of cases because my perspective is if you're not going to go after people who threaten the lives of elected you know, government officials, and not just elected, sometimes appointed officials, sometimes people on the board of canvassers or you know, township clerks or what have you, you know, then good people are not going to want to have these jobs anymore. Yeah. They're not going to think it's, it's worth it. And also, while you certainly are free to disagree with the policies uh, or the work of government officials, you cannot threaten their lives, period. That is still against the law. And I think we've just gotten so numb to this that we just sit back and think somehow that's fine for, for people on social media or certain, I'll say, quote unquote, news outlets uh, to use this kind of violent rhetoric. But it's not okay. And I will say in our state, you know, just a few months ago, we had the co-chair of the Michigan Republican Party uh, threaten assassination against two Republicans that voted to impeach uh, you know, Trump and then threatened, let's see, he called myself, the Secretary of State and the Governor, witches who should be burned at the stake. That's the head of the Republican Party in our state. Our our Senate Majority Leader has called the insurrection on January 6th a hoax. He's, he's the top Republican in the state. He openly talks about meeting with militia members behind closed doors and assisting them with their, quote, messaging. And he brags about not being vaccinated and says that he's been naturally vaccinated by catching COVID, so there's no need to get vaccinated, and urges others not to get vaccinated. So that's our Republican Party in Michigan. <laughs> it's been a struggle. There's no question about it. These state party chairs seem like positively even more deranged than the Republican elected. Yeah. And in fact, the other chair, the co-chair, um, you know, she was at the insurrection on January the 6th. She routinely, she refers to Democrats as evil. Again, for the three uh, women elected to the top of our ticket, calls us, um, let's say, the three-headed monster. And, you know, just routinely, routinely uses the kinds of phrases that I think are more akin to certainly not a democracy like ours. Uh, and they're used, I think it's very much poll tested. It's used to dehumanize us and to demean us to the extent that it gets Trump supporters excited about coming out to the polls to vote against Democrats because not only, you know, might you not agree with our policies, but, you know, after all, we're witches and, and you know, uh, it, it's, a, it's really concerning. And what it does is it, it escalates this kind of a rhetoric escalates the violence in our states and it leads to death threats and it leads to people, you know, plotting to kill the governor. And it's a very scary time to be in America and to be here in the state of Michigan. Have you seen crimes that you feel relate to this heightened rhetoric? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, people I'm sure have seen them uh, across the globe. We saw what happened 
as a precursor to the events at the Capitol on January 6th last year uh, on April 30th, when you had a number of militia members who overtook our state capitol. Fortunately, there was not further violence, although I think we really were lucky to have escaped it. And, and, and later on, we were to find out that there you know, were those that intended uh, to potentially be violence uh, against our state legislators, but maybe got cold feet. Uh, and that it, that it was actually one of the plans that some of these individuals had in place as an alternative to the plot against the governor was to either bomb the Capitol building or to take hostages or to have a mass shooting. Uh, but we've seen a number of instances where, I mean, even if you looked at the events at the TCF Center that happened after the election, you know, in Detroit, where you had angry mobs that tried to take over the voting center there. It's very concerning, but it, it is all attributable to these Republican elected leaders and party chairs that disseminate, disseminate this misinformation about the election and get individuals to a place where they truly believe that the election was stolen from them. And then you have, in addition to that, you have your, you know, Sidney Powell types and your Rudy Giuliani's that, that in legal proceedings will you know, make these massive misrepresentations. And even if the courts don't buy them, the audience they're really looking for is the electorate. And, you know, a lot of, a lot, as you know, statistically, many Republicans have, you know, they have bought this, you know, hook, line and sinker. And as I've often said, if these individuals truly believe that the election was stolen and if they've, if they've drunk the Kool-Aid, then it was these lawyers that uh, mixed it, served it up to them in Dixie Cops, you know? Yeah. Do you, how are you going to avoid having, I mean, what's happening in Arizona seems absolutely insane. There's, you know, there's some that, you know, the Trump Trump administration would like to do this everywhere. How can you avoid this in Michigan? I don't think the law allows for it. In fact, I think it could have been prevented in Arizona. But again, this might be a good reason why you have Democratic uh, attorneys general, uh, I think it would be illegal. I think we could stop it if they tried to do it here. You know, we had a we had a hand recount in, in Antrim County, and we know that the results of the, the hand-counted ballots, we have paper ballots here, and that it matched the election results. So we know it was accurate. Any type of so-called audit, but it's really a fraud. I don't even like using that word because it's a misrepresentation of, of the ridiculousness that we're seeing in Arizona right now. We know that that would be illegal. So I think given the fact that we have myself as attorney general and uh, Jocelyn Benson as secretary of state, I, I don't see that how that could possibly happen here illegally. Right. Oh, well, that's good to hear. So what do you think? Another thing that um, I have been hearing about and reading about is this idea that Republicans are trying to install Trumpy or or more sort of morally questionable secretaries of state because then for the next election, they'll have more ability to override elections. Oh, absolutely. That's their plan. And we've been very clear about that. And I will say this in terms of attorneys general. You know, I heard Ken Paxton just the other day bragging about the fact that he had, you know, his work as attorney general, had been utilized to suppress the vote. And I heard him talking about Harris County. I heard him talking about other counties that have large 
uh, communities of color and where they worked very, very hard to ensure that they could limit the drop boxes and that there would be other procedures that um, would not be implemented that would have allowed for more legal voters to be able to cast their ballot. So and let's talk about Ken Paxton for one second, because I just I want to give a little intro because he's not the big celebrity that he is to you and I. Um, he is the Texas attorney general. He's a Republican. He has several indictments against him and an FBI investigation. Yeah, he's a treat, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he seems great. So continue on. Yes. <laughs> Ken Paxton, I mean, he worked very hard to ensure that in a number of lawsuits that were filed, you know, the vote could be suppressed. And so if there were uh, challenges to some ridiculous um, laws that were implemented by the, you know, the legislature in Texas or by the governor in Texas uh, that would limit people's ability to vote, especially during the course of a, of a global pandemic, where, of course, people were so afraid to go to the polls, uh, he defended those laws vigorously, uh, and I think he initiated some lawsuits on his own, actually, to uh, against municipalities to make it harder for them to be able to vote. Uh, and then he bragged about it. He bragged about um, him being the reason why uh, Texas went to Trump instead of Biden. And maybe he's right. He probably does deserve credit for that. He also attended the events in, at the Capitol on January the 6th uh, and urged the angry crowd to fight and to go to the Capitol and fight. Uh, and I think one could definitely argue that he played a role in that. He also sued several states, including right. my own. He sued four states, Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, to overturn our elections in our states, which has never been done before by an attorney general in another state. We were successful. He, he brought a case at the United States Supreme Court and was summarily rebuked. But, you know, he, he got 16 other Republican attorneys general to join him in doing so. And, you know, it was just absolutely astounding and horrifying. And after all that, he still didn't get a pardon from Trump. He still didn't. All that sucking up got him nowhere. And now I hear that George Bush's uh, nephew is going to be running against him, potentially, uh, so things really didn't go his way and probably will continue not to go his way when it comes to the legal matters that are against him. But it's very unfortunate because there was a time where attorneys general, I think, were much more collegial with each other and worked together on all kinds of issues that were very important, consumer protection issues, uh, certainly the opioid litigation against drug manufacturers and distributors. Uh, around the country, but it's just very, very difficult to form close relationships with AGs trying to overturn the election of, of my state residents. And all I could say is like, what, hap what would happen in 2024 if Michigan were to go Republican and then you had the AGs of California or New York or Massachusetts trying to overturn our election here? Is this going to yeah. happen Every swing state with every election, it's insane. No, it's completely insane. And I think it's a really important point. I let, I mean, I think like what it, it is. And, and, and also attorneys generals are supposed to be above the partisan fray. Well, you know, traditionally, yes. But unfortunately, I, you know, what is to be done when you had, for instance, the, the Trump administration who didn't hesitate 
to violate uh, the Constitution, to violate, um, you know, federal law. I mean, it really was up to the state AGs to hold them accountable. And we did. We filed dozens and dozens of lawsuits. We won almost all of them. We won 86% of the cases that we filed because those policies were both so flagrantly illegal. Um, but right now, we're waiting to see if the ACA will still be in existence. And every day that goes by, I mean, by the end of June, we're going to know whether we still have uh, the Affordable Care Act or not, right? And that's because Republican attorneys general brought a case that would dismantle the ACA. And almost all the Republican AGs, even in the states where they have millions of their own state residents that rely on the ACA to have any health insurance, you know, they participated in that case and it's the de Democratic AGs that have to defend that and did defend it throughout the course of this case. So we'll find out really any day now whether that act even still uh, exists or not. Uh, I'm more worried now. Please um, come back soon and also stay safe. You're up for re-election in 2022. I am, I am. And, you know, I just, for your, you know, listeners, I think it is important, you know, you brought up um, uh, secretaries of state, you brought up attorneys general. And yes, of course, it's important for us to not just win the Senate, apparently, as Democrats, but win it by a lot because we can't count on every Democratic senator um, to care about things like voting rights. But I have to say that everything really comes down to the states. And even if you don't live in the state of Michigan, you ought to care who the attorney general and the secretary of state are in the state of Michigan and in all the swing states. It matters. And it matters a lot. And it could be whether or not our democracy survives. Yeah. Uh, one party's for democracy and the other party is just out of its mind. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back soon, A.G. Nassau. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. What's crazier than QAnon? More outlandish than Pizzagate? And scarier than a Mexican getaway with Ted Cruz? The answer is what the American right wing has planned next. Be one of the first to listen to Fever Dreams, the new podcast from the Daily Beast tracking the conspiracy slingers, orange acolytes, and straight-up grifters pushing to retake power. Every Wednesday, hosts Swin Subasang and Will Summer check in on the movement of the radical right. Head to thedailybeast.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast player to catch the first episode and get subscribed. That's Fever Dreams, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Paxton Smith is the valedictorian of Lakeland Highlands High School in Dallas, Texas, who had her valedictorian speech go viral this week, which I'm going to play now before our interview. As we leave high school, we need to make our voices heard. Today, I was going to talk about TV and media and content because it's something that's very important to me. However, under, light, however, under light of recent events, it feels wrong to talk about anything but what is currently affecting me and millions of other women in the state. Recently, the heartbeat bill was passed in Texas. Starting in September, there will be a ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, regardless of whether the pregnancy was a result of rape or incest. Six weeks. That's all women get. And so before they realize, most of them don't realize that they're pregnant by six weeks. So before they have a chance to decide if they are emotionally, physically, and financially stable enough to carry out a full-term pregnancy, before 
they have the chance to decide if they can take on the responsibility of bringing another human being into the world, that decision is made for them by a stranger. A decision that will affect the rest of their lives is made by a stranger. I have dreams and hopes and ambitions. Every girl graduating today does. And we have spent our entire lives working towards our future. And without our input and without our consent, our control over that future has been stripped away from us. I am terrified that if my contraceptives fail, I am terrified that if I am raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. I hope that you can feel how gut-wrenching that is. I hope you can feel how dehumanizing it is to have the autonomy over your own body taken away from you. And I'm talking about this today, on a day as important as this on a day honoring 12 years of hard academic work, on a day where we are all gathered together, on a day where you are most inclined to listen to a voice like mine, a woman's voice, to tell you that this is a problem, and it's a problem that cannot wait. And I cannot give up this platform to promote complacency and peace when there is a war on my body and a war on my rights a war on the rights of your mothers, a war on the rights of your sisters, a war on the rights of your daughters. We cannot stay silent. Thank you. Welcome Paxton Smith to the new Abnormal. Thank you. We are so excited to have you. First of all, you're valedictorian in your class. Yes. Does the valedictorian always give the speech? Yes. And when did you know you were going to be valedictorian? I've known for quite a while. We got our ranks freshman year and I was number one then. And so I knew for a while that there was a high likelihood that I was going to stay number one. And I did. <laughs> and so did you always write two speeches? Did you always know you were going to do this? How did you come up with this? I did not. Initially, when I was working on my speech, I was writing one about content and media and how it has affected the way that I view reality. Yeah. And I was all in on that speech. It took me about two weeks to write it. And after the passing of the heartbeat bill, there was really a turning point for me where I thought that it would be essential that I talked about that instead. And tell me, like, when you found out that the heartbeat bill passed, were you like, I mean, what was your thinking there? When I found out the heartbeat bill was passed, I was genuinely shocked and I was very surprised and upset. And a part of me felt like it it couldn't even be real. You had this other speech, you put it aside, you wrote this new speech, which has some of the really incredible writing in it. I tweeted out like a like a transcription of some of the, you know, the because your idea is very simple, right? And it's something that all girls in Texas should be worried about. Right. So when you switched it out, what happened? You sent them the old speech? I did. And they approved that speech. Were your parents on board with this? Well, <laughs> mostly. 
I told them at different times. I told my dad and my stepmom initially, and both of them were kind of apprehensive at first because I could imagine as a parent being afraid for your child to, to put their face on something so controversial like that. But I told them that I had, I had thought out the consequences of what might happen and that that was something that I was willing to take on because I thought it was the right thing to do to make that speech. And so they were supportive after that. That's pretty awesome. I have to say, like, so when you got up there, how'd you feel? Very calm. Interesting. (laughs) I was dreading making the speech for a long time. And it was something that I wrestled with myself a little bit before I did it. But ultimately, I thought that it was the right thing to do. And so when I got on the stage, I wasn't really nervous because I had already played out a lot of the scenarios in my head. It was just a very calm feeling of like, okay, it's time to do this. When you said it, did you what was the reaction in the crowd like? Incredibly positive. You can't tell on the recording, but there were cheers starting about halfway through the speech. And they just kept going up until the end, which is when you start hearing them on the video. I mean, is your town very conservative? I think it is. It's hard to say. It's very easy to surround yourself with people who share the same ideologies as you do. So maybe I haven't seen that presence as much, but I'm pretty sure there is a very large conservative group. When you came off stage, did teachers, were they supportive? Yes, incredibly supportive. They're was almost nobody who had something negative to say about it that day. So, I mean, are you scared for the future of women in Texas? Of course I am. Do you think there's a world in which Texas goes blue? I do think so. I think that is definitely a possibility. But I don't have enough information on that to be able to give you, like, a good opinion on that, you know? Right. But you're feeling in your, with your generation, like, you definitely see hope. Yes. I think that's a really great thing. So now you're going to go to University of Texas. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? Because you're 18, so you should definitely know that. (laughs) Absolutely. I should have my entire (laughs) life planned out. Yes, it's time. Let's go. It's about time. Yeah, I need to get myself together. Um, (laughs) The plan right now is to study music and see if I can pull off a career in music. And I'm very excited for you. I think you're just, you know, awesome. And it's very cool to have you. Thank you so much, Paxton. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Hi, Jesse Cannon. Hi, Molly Jungfast. So, I think you got a different fuck that guy than usual this week. You know, I try never to punch left mm, or mm. down. Definitely Not that no, this definitely is Definitely no down. down. Definitely no down. But this, I don't like to punch left. But... When the left is doing something that seems really, like, stupid, I have to say something. And the idea of primarying a Joe Manchin is not going to happen. You guys, (laughs) Joe Manchin is in a state called West Virginia. It is an R plus 10 billion. It is a red state. In fact, the governor of West Virginia, Jim Justice, was a Democrat and changed to be a Republican because it's a very Republican state. So even though I understand that people are mad at Joe Manchin, I understand that people are sick of his bullshit. I understand that everyone is very cranky. But unfortunately, you got to love the one you're with here. And if Joe Manchin, if Democrats try to punish Joe Manchin for not going along with them, 
they are going to not have the majority anymore because Joe Manchin is just going to go over to Mitch McConnell and have a cigar and that's it. So <laughs> you guys, I love the energy and the excitement and I'm very pleased. Go take that energy and register some voters in North Carolina so that Democrats can win a Senate seat there. But there is some things they can do that's not arguing that his committee assignments be stripped. If we're in the streets and we're really pushing for this voter reform and changing public favor so it's really, really popular and it's getting sunlight on it, that helps pressure him to lift the filibuster for this or change it back to a talking filibuster and allowing him to support that. Yeah, no, it's true. And look, there are ways to get Joe Manchin on board. And, you know, Democrats hit earmarks that West Virginia desperately needs, right? Money and bridges and infrastructure. Like, West Virginia really needs federal government assistance. Joe Manchin is the person to get it for them. But threatening him is not going to get him there. And so for those people, I say a very gentle and warm and fuzzy, stop doing that. Which it's like, fuck you, but it's for, uh, for the left. So it's just a let's stop doing that. And they are my let's stop doing that guy of today. What's yours, Jesse? Well, you know, for balance, because, you know, if there's two people who really care about keeping a uh, left-right parody and pretending yes. that they're both the same, it's definitely you and I. Right, that's right. You're <laughs> yes, the, exactly. the right-winger. We, 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 we're trying to outdo Chris Saliza these that's days. That's right. Jesus Christ. How does Saliza, why don't you make Saliza your fuck that guy? I, I mean, I could do it every single time he makes a piece of content. It's just be boring at this point. But I am going to punch very far right because the far right is demanding that after the most boring emails on earth came out from Dr. Fauci, who sounded like he was writing every email with the energy that we've all had at some point of, oh God, just get this inbox clean, that they're demanding he be investigated. When it's very apparent that if you want to talk about the fuckery that went on during this pandemic to cause so many deaths, let's start opening up some other inboxes. And to them, I say, cherry-picking Fauci when we should be investigating all of your people, the Scott Atlases. And the Jared Kushners and the Don Juniors. Every one of these from the PPP being shifted around to punishing the states. Let's get some FOIAs going. Let's get some emails open that sounds like a lot of fun guys let's let's get to it let's have some hearings where the fuck are my hearings that's what i'm saying where the fuck are my hearings where the fuck are my I, hearings? I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do a rap where where, where that's gonna no, be the chorus where the that. fuck my don't, hearings don't at don't do that let's not do that <laughs> On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns.